The Arts of the San Joaquin Valley is a program that focuses on the arts community from Stockton to Merced and Foothill to Foothill. We talk with local authors, poets, playwrights, fine artists, actors, directors, filmmakers, dancers, musicians, crafters, and makers to learn more about their art and the arts-related events here in our part of the valley. We're your hosts, Linda Scheller. And I'm Sandy Graham. If you're involved in the greater arts community of our area and would like to be featured, we will share our contact information at the end of the show. My guest today is Lillian Valley. Lillian Valley is an award-winning translator, writer, poet, professor, and scholar. Lillian has published over 170 translations, articles, reviews, and poems and has given close to 100 public talks, lectures, and readings. Lillian's most recent book is Rivers of Birds, Forests of Thule, a collection of essays about the natural and cultural history of the Central Valley. Welcome, Lillian. Thank you. Uh, I'm very honored to be here and uh, happy to um, participate in this interview, and uh, hello to the audience. The essays in Rivers of Birds, Forest of Thule previously appeared in Stanislaus Connections, the Modesto Peace Life Center's monthly publication. How and when did you start writing and publishing these essays? These little columns um, began to appear after I finished my doctoral dissertation. I wanted to do something to express the, my delight in uh, living here and getting to know uh, the natural history and the uh, human history of the valley. And um, I had written for Stanislaus Connections occasional articles and I approached uh, Jim Costello. And as always, he was quite receptive and encouraging. And he then became the first reader and editor of the columns. At what point did you decide to compile and publish them then as a book? Just recently, it is one of four retirement projects that I have planned, the, the first of them. And in order to do it, I started the little press, the Oak Apple Press. When I began to put them together, I realized that they represented a big chunk of experience of living here in the valley. And um, I wanted to make sure that I was able to share that with people both for, um, again, the uh, joy of getting to know a little more deeply the natural history here, but also to highlight the cooperation of various groups in the area that make this place a lovely place to live in culturally, and also to uh, hope, um, with the hope that the columns could would become a vehicle for advocacy for the overall health of the valley. Uh, would you please read us an excerpt from Rivers of Birds, Forest of Thule? That was a, a really hard thing to do because I just wanted to read a little piece. Okay. If I have two obsessions that have come out of my getting to know the natural history, the spectacular natural history of this area, it is a love for the San Joaquin River and uh, a love for valley oaks. So 
I I'm going to choose to read about the river because it was such an important artery and there were such struggles to uh, make it uh, a living river and those struggles are still going on. So I am going to read just two paragraphs from a column called Singing Back the River. It is impossible to explain why one river moves a person to the quick and another doesn't, but the San Joaquin, diverted, disrupted, and polluted, is a river that calls to me with singular force. Even though the river boasts an illustrious history, not too long ago it was a major transportation artery crowded with steamers, barges, and spawning Chinook salmon, the San Joaquin is a river reviled. Many even refuse to call it a river, and it is not uncommon to hear it referred to as dead, a sewer, an agricultural drain, a ghost river, or even the upper colon of San Francisco Bay. Since the building of Friant Dam near Fresno, 98% of San Joaquin River water is impounded, and two stretches totaling roughly 60 miles of the old riverbed are completely dry. The river is often used for dumping. It is painful to be part of a culture capable of turning living water into poison during the lifespan of one generation. Yet the degradation of the river is just one chapter of a long and rich history. That history includes grizzlies swimming to the river's many islands, Pacific Flyway migratory communities feeding and nesting in a vast network of wetlands and sloughs, diverse Yokuts tribes poling river waters in tule balsas and gathering acorns on its terraces, and children plunging into the current on horseback when the summer heat became too much. Imagine summer picnics under oaks, blackberry feasts, and salmon responding to winter rains or to what old timers called the June rise, the river swollen with summer snowmelt. These stories are as important to reviving the river, to singing it back, as an awareness of how many acres the river irrigates. That's beautiful, thank you. That's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking, uh, but one of the things that I've learned and I think that I hope the columns communicate is that this is a land that waits to be healed. The plants are there, the animals are there, the water is allocated, it heals, and it's, it's fast. Uh, it's a very responsive landscape. There are beautiful illustrations by Derek Madden. Could you please tell us about your collaboration with him on the book? The collaboration amounted to my asking Derek if I could use his drawings because they had been used by uh, Tana Denon in reprints of the columns that were done in the museum, the Great Valley Museum of Natural History's um, newsletter. And he is the most wonderful human being in the world, uh, completely selfless, egoless, and he said, just use whatever you want. Mm -hmm. I think what has been really interesting to me about that collaboration is that many of the drawings are taken out of very large works of entire ecosystems. And so pieces are taken out of these ecosystems, and not just by me, but by other people. 
But actually, what should happen to his work is it should be published in a big folio edition. And uh, he has been so good about uh, lending his drawings to anyone that wants to use them uh, to raise awareness about uh, the Central Valley without any kind of payment. It's completely selfless. So I can't praise him enough for his role in helping to create this book and the beauty that's in it. Where can listeners obtain a copy of Rivers of Birds, Forests of Thule? The best place is the Great Valley Museum of History on um, Modesto Junior College's West Campus. And they can also contact me directly, lillianvalley at yosemite.edu. And I'm happy to send anyone who is interested a book. This is KCVP Community Radio 95.5 FM and streaming at kcbpradio.org. You're listening to Arts of the San Joaquin Valley with your host, Linda Scheller. And today I'm speaking with Lillian Valley, an author, translator, professor, and scholar. Lillian, how did you come to love the Central Valley's nature? Well, I think I I was part of uh, a wave of commuters that ended up in the Central Valley because of affordable house prices, so uh, not anything very unusual. But I have to say that one trip to Foster Farms manure piles, they had these gigantic chicken manure piles that they would give to anybody who would bring a truck to uh, take care of your garden. So I was working on a backyard garden and there was a man there that was loading up the truck. I was watching the birds because there were all these birds scavenging the, um, the chicken manure piles. And it was a very sort of lunar landscape. The people that worked there, there were these chicken barracks and uh, they were all dressed in what looked like astronaut outfits to me. Uh, so you had this, you know, you had this industrial chicken operation and then these manure piles that were being scavenged by birds. And the man said, with a little twinkle in his eye, you look like you might be interested in birds. Why don't you take a peek over that fence? And there was a fence adjacent to a farmer's cornfield. And uh, there was a log in front of that fence. And when I stepped up on that log, I don't know how many, it felt like hundreds of sandhill cranes went up into the air. And I was so taken aback by the, by the beauty of this, this wild bird that I learned is one of the oldest birds on the planet, right next to an industrial chicken operation. And I thought, this contrast of a wild pulse and animal husbandry sort of at its most maybe sophisticated in in some ways. I I had to investigate this. How could this coexist in in one place? And that was the beginning. I went to the Great Valley Museum, and they had these wonderful docent training programs. And I really owe almost everything that I know to that start at the Great Valley Museum and uh, the docent training. I became a docent for a while and um, learned about the habitats. They were the repository of so much information about the natural history of the valley, and and that was the beginning. The Great Valley Museum is such a treasure. Uh, Absolutely a community gem. Before the coming of the explorers, the padres, the Californios, miners, and settlers, what was our part of the valley like? 
It was probably one of the most spectacular places on the face of the globe. And this is why someone like William Preston would say that if it were any other place on the face of the globe, it would have been celebrated as one of the cradles of civilization. You had wild rivers, so you had the San Joaquin and the Sacramento. Uh, you had, I think it was about 19 million acres of grassland, millions of acres of freshwater marsh, riparian corridors that were quite extensive, uh, oak woodlands uh, along those corridors and savannas in between. And because I live uh, between the Tuolumne River and Dry Creek and Stanislaus River to the north, this was part of that landscape. I live on a terrace and I began to look around and uh, saw that there were many many old oaks that were here, remnant oaks. So this, this was a place that had an incredible amount of food and biodiversity and one of the densest populations uh, for that reason of uh, native peoples mm. in California and uh, possibly uh, in North America. I've always been told that the density of native peoples was highest after the Valley of Mexico. I think it's the richness of the natural resources that then dictated the density of the populations here. So there was salmon, four different runs of salmon uh, in, the, in the rivers and steelhead and sturgeon. There were billions of ducks, geese, wildfowl of every description in addition to the cranes that I saw in Livingston that day. It was that richness that uh, dictated also the richness of the cultures here. Could you describe how the native people of the Central Valley lived traditionally? That's um, a description that would fill many, many volumes. Um, I've been so grateful to the native peoples that were able to survive the waves of Europeans of various descriptions that came through here. They had a very diverse food source. They uh, tended to live along the edges of the valley because of that rhythm of parching and flooding that happened here that uh, settlers who came in had to deal with and actually be began to control with irrigation and dams of various descriptions. I think what impressed me the most is the, the genius of these peoples to use the foods and the materials, the natural materials here in the ways that they did um, so that it wasn't a hand-to-mouth existence. And there was a great respect that um, I see to this day in the best of the native communities a, a care for the environment and and I think that for them the environment was the abode of the sacred it was not a sacred that was located in an institutional religion it was something that was available to them all around them I think that's an important understanding to have of the sacred in nature and the way it is in all of it even the parts that we might see as darker. Mm -hmm. To this day, I mean, I, I have tried to get to know uh, a little bit about those cultures. I have a deep respect for them, and um, 
I wish that we were more interested in sustaining them and not just, you know, for our own purposes, but for the values that they contain about uh, an equilibrium in nature, about restraint. So um, I have tried to learn as much as I can from Native people and about Native people because I think that we were in desperate need of those values. Can you recommend any books for our listeners? A few days ago, uh, Jim Costello sent me some old Stanislaw stepping stones uh, that I think he found that the library was getting rid of, and he sent those to me. There was a, a, a tremendous passion about that early history uh, and it's in some of these local sources. I went to the library. Um, at that time, the library, the Sandsworth County Library, had a, had a little history room, and you could go back there, and they had a lot of books about the local history. And there was a, I remember there was a cassette tape there, and when I listened to it, the woman spoke of being able to get on a rise somewhere in the valley and being able to see all the way to the Sutter Buttes and to the Sierra Nevada so I think there are local sources at the library. That's a good place to begin. But here are some of the books that I have found about Native peoples. Frank Latta's Handbook of Yokut's uh, Indians is full of stories about those people. Frank Latta regarded the Yokut's people that he encountered, and uh, he grew up near Oristimba Creek in Patterson. He regarded them as some of the best people that he had ever met, and he tried desperately to record their stories uh, before they disappeared. And out of that gathering of stories, um, Malcolm Marlin of Haiti Books published a classic account of the traditional life of the Chinumni Indians in the southern part of the San Joaquin Valley called Indian Summer. That is a, a wonderful place to begin. It's accessible. It has beautiful descriptions of people coming to the valley for the first time and seeing just these miles and miles of, of wildflowers and giant herds of tule elk and uh, antelope. So that's another one that, that I could highly recommend. Uh, a friend of mine, Kat Anderson, who is an, an ethnobotanist, wrote a book called Tending the Wild, Native American Knowledge and the Management of California's Natural Resources. Uh, if anyone is interested in, in wild foods or doing some agroforestry projects in their own backyard, it's a wonderful, exhaustive book on how active Indians actually were in managing Everything from the bulbs in the ground, the bulbs that we call Indian potatoes, geophytes, to uh, acorn forests, uh, oak trees. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. My favorite book on Tulare Lake is Vanishing Landscapes. That's by geographer William Preston. It's about land and life in the Tulare Lake Basin. That's another lake that needs to be sung back. I hope that people will find some, some project for themselves in these books. I also used Elna Bakker's An Island Called California for the backyard gardener, um, Judith Larner Lowry's Gardening with a Wild Heart and the Landscaping Ideas of Jays. Judith Lowry is the poet of native plants. She has a seed business in Bolinas. And there's nobody that writes about native plants with greater lyricism than Judith. 
I have also really uh, relied a lot on Alan Schoenherr's Natural History of California. There's a beautiful section in there on the Central Valley. I love all the books on oaks. So that would be, um, oaks are a, a one of my passions along with the San Joaquin River. There's a book that Kachuma Press issued called Oaks of California. There's Glenn Keeter's The Life of an Oak, which is a tremendously detailed book about the life cycle of an oak. And then one of my favorite books, if you want to put oaks into a, a, a broader context, is William Bryant Logan's Oak, the Frame of Civilization. And he talks about Bolano culture, which are acorn cultures, and how lucky we are to have one of the few Bolano cultures that has made it into the 21st centuries with, with our native peoples in California. One of the most lyrical books about wetlands are Peter Steinhardt's essays called Tracks in the Sky, a collaboration with Tupper Ansel Blake, the photographer. There is a chapter there called The Kindness of Mud, which is one of my favorite chapters in the whole world about wetlands. He doesn't get much attention. I've read so many books on wetlands recently, and he's never in the bibliography, and he should be there. It's some of the best writing. For people who are interested in reading about the natural world from a fictional standpoint, might want to take a look at Richard Powers, um, The Overstory, and people interested in mushrooms should get familiar with Paul Stamets' Mycelium Running, How Mushrooms Can Help Save the World. Those are just some. I'd have to take every book off of my bookshelf (laughs) (laughs) because there's an endless amount to learn about what we have in our own backyards. And even if you don't go anywhere else, uh, if you really look at the small things in your own yard, you'll get another education completely. You've referenced almost all these books, haven't you, in your collection of essays? I have. I've been very lucky to have friends who are biologists and people in love with plants and in love with the natural history of this area. Uh, It's just been such a gift, gift to me. Where can our listeners go and see valley habitats in their more natural state? Well, most people write off um, the the Central Valley as a place that has those, probably because of, you know, all of the large-scale agriculture and the engineering that's made that possible. But I love the local refuges, and I love the people who work for the Fish and Wildlife Service. These are my favorite people in the world. That's another completely selfless group with a passion for preserving, you know, what we have left and for restoring a little bit more of it in a state that has tremendous population pressures. So I would say visit the local refuges. If I'm just looking around my house, there's Dry Creek Park, which has a riparian corridor. There's the Tuolumne River, which has another riparian corridor, and the Stanislaus River, of course. The refuges are the San Joaquin River Refuge, which is off of 132. If you take a left on the river road, Eric Hobson is the man there who um, has been keeping it all together and expanding it. It's a fantastic place for birding and for seeing every once in a while, as I did one day, a whooping crane that had strayed in from somewhere. 
my favorite place is the San Luis National Wildlife Refuge and the Merced Refuge. The San Luis Refuge, because that's where, when I was teaching, students volunteered to do the most work. And we had a very active planting and restoration program at that refuge. Gary Zahm was the project leader at that time, and he was very instrumental in um, setting up the Wild on Wetlands weekends uh, to raise awareness. And he was just a wonderful resource to go to for information about what to do, how to participate. Dennis Woolington, Eric Hobson, Jack Sparks, Madeline Yancey, these are all fish and wildlife people that I love that have done so much uh, to raise awareness, to plant things uh, at San Luis. Sousa Marsh is a great place from maybe about December, January through April to see sandhill cranes in huge numbers, to see snow geese and Ross's geese in tremendous numbers. Uh, if you want the quintessential valley experience, just to see the, the sky reeling with wildlife, uh, those, those would be the places to go. What can we as a region do to preserve the existing wetlands, riparian forests, alkali sinks, and other valley habitats? I think we have to support uh, the agencies and be firm in that support, the agencies um, and organizations that are working to do that, you know, whether it's the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, the state parks, uh, the Nature Conservancy has, uh, I didn't mention the Consumnus Preserve, but that's another tremendous place to visit not too far away uh, near Elk Grove um, that people might want to visit. I think you have to support. I think you have to inform yourself. I think it's really important that your imagination be engaged in understanding what it is that we're trying to protect. Someone has said this, maybe it was Gerald Haslam, places live and die in the imagination. So if a place is dead in the imagination, the way the Central Valley is for many people, the nature in the Central Valley is just not seen as nature sometimes worth preserving. If people look at it that way, they're not engaged imaginatively, they don't know what it was like 200 years ago, then I think there isn't the will to do that, to advocate for it. But I think you support the agencies that are working so hard to keep those places alive. I think you inform yourself. And this can begin by just getting to know what's in your backyard, what's in your neighborhood, what little pieces of natural habitat are there. We had so many remnant oaks in the Loma neighborhood when I first moved here. Many of them have been cut down. These are, these are trees that were 100, 200 years old. And the oak is is really an emblem of how much you can learn from something like a tree, even in your own backyard. Uh, Any uh, native plants that you can get to know and plant, uh, restore relationships that are important in this area, whether it's pollinators, plant relationships, creating soil health. If there's a something on your tax form to give a little bit of money for 
the environment. It's a painless way, I think, to do it. Get engaged in some of the local organizations. There's the Tuolumne River Trust. There are the Audubon and Sierra Clubs. There are the Farmland Trust. I would like to see the farmland and uh, the natural areas a little more meshed uh, than they are right now. So I think you start with yourself, though. You start with yourself, maybe with your garden, and then expand the concentric circles. I think it's important to engage children. I would often take students into the parks, and it would be the favorite thing that they did for the whole entire <laughs> semester. <laughs> so I, I think there, there are many ways to approach this. Find one that's comfortable for you, and that's exciting for you, because I think without this passion to explore and to learn, you're not really going to be an advocate for anything larger either. So start small. <laughs> This is KCBP Community Radio 95.5 Wesley. You're listening to Arts of the San Joaquin Valley, and I'm speaking with Lillian Valley. She is the author, most recently, of Rivers of Birds, Forests of Thule. Is there any way that we can reclaim more of these habitats that have, that have been damaged? Yes, I think so. I, you know, when when I was teaching and had many many students, students students loved doing this kind of work. I can go back now, twenty years later, and, and just see how these places have completely healed up. So, I think get engaged in the actual physical work. So, if there are restoration projects. And you can get yourself on a mailing list for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. They have milkweed planting projects and saltgrass planting projects. Not as many as uh, they did uh, when I was teaching. Uh, but I think it's really important to actually do, do the work and see the results. And of course, I would love to see Tulare Lake come back. So what, what does that mean? if you want to reclaim something that has really taken a beating by industrial agriculture. Uh, people have been fighting to restore even a little piece of Tulare Lake. But I think this is, again, where the imagination comes in or memory comes in. Anyone that learns anything about what Tulare Lake was would want it back. It was a rookery for hundreds, thousands of freshwater pelicans. Uh, it, it was quite an amazing lake to have in a kind of alkali sink desert environment fed by these mountain rivers. And some of the oldest native communities were founded on the shores of, of this lake. So I I think, again, it's a matter of um, get to know your place. You know, it was one of the reasons that in my introduction I quoted a farmer, Gene Logston, who said, uh, the only way to avoid provincialism is to get to know your province deeply enough. So I would say the first step is get to know your province deeply enough. Could you please tell us about your native garden? 
My native garden, I think, um, it is an extension of uh, some of the restoration work that I began to do when I, when I saw what, how different the wildlife was um, when we were restoring pieces of the refuges. I pretty quickly gave up the lawn uh, and began to put native plants, but Having a native plant garden, and in my case, I have oaks and uh, sedges and um, plants that are not exactly charismatic, like mule fat and coyote bush. Uh, but these are some of the great wildlife uh, plants, quail bush uh, and certainly bird, bird plants. Um, so you have to change your idea of what you think a garden should be. And uh, it means giving up a little bit of control, just as in the, in the larger picture, we have to pull back a little bit to recreate uh, a balance and equilibrium between the natural world and our husbandry, our, our farming practices. Um, we have to do the same thing. You can start with your yard. You you pull back a little bit. It's not going to be as manicured. It's not going to be an English country garden for the most part. Um, uh, you're going to have to adjust the garden to uh, what wants to be there uh, in this area. And the plants that have the greatest resilience here uh, are the native plants. And my little plot of land. I have a quarter of an acre on North Conejo in the La Loma area. Has one passion, and that is to become an oak woodland. <laughs> oh, okay. And I don't know if that's the passion of the land or of the scrub jays <laughs> that live <laughs> all around here, but um, I have to yank out, you know, dozens of small oak saplings, but that's what it wants to be. And the oaks are the longest lived in this area. I live across the street from a 220, it's gonna be 222 year old oak that must have been planted in, in about 1798. Wow. And there is no substitute for an oak tree. So if you wanna do one thing and you have the room for it, plant an oak tree, you will learn more about the area, about the bird life, about um, the mycorrhizal, networks in your soil, about mushrooms, about galls, about lichens. Native peoples did not live under oak trees for a good reason, and I'm finding that out because I have many oak trees. <laughs> There's always something coming down. Oak trees are producers of a tremendous biomass of leaves, of galls, of twigs in the spring. I'm so amazed at the lichen that you will find on these branches and twigs that come down. These little and very old organisms are cleaning the air around you on every oak tree. Uh, they're doing this tremendous service. If you look at a lichen on a, on a little twig that comes down under a microscope, you will see a tropical jungle. It is the most fantastic thing to look at. So uh, oak trees are the greatest education, and it's the reason that I would love to get the Loma Junior High kids out there to study that oak rather than toilet paper it. Um, 
because it is an elder and uh, it has a tremendous amount to teach us about tolerance and endurance. It tolerates many different kinds of organisms and species of insects and uh, it, it, it is just an amazing, amazing living thing. Where is the city of Modesto's native garden? Um, the La Loma native plant garden uh, was uh, put in by uh, the residents of La Loma under the leadership of Rhonda Allen, who is probably the one person most responsible for its existence and its maintenance and its thriving. Uh, and uh, so most of the species there are native. The city of Modesto planted, I think it was 19 oak saplings. Oh. We will have a little strip, a little oak woodland there uh, eventually of valley and uh, live oak. And uh, it has been uh, a tremendous boon to the neighborhood. People love walking through it and learning about native plants there. So uh, but if you are interested in native plants, the first thing you want to do is join the California Native Plant Society. And Jim Bruger is the president of our chapter, and he's a good person to contact, and I'm sure could use help if anybody's interested in learning and helping. This is Arts of the San Joaquin Valley on KCBP Community Radio, 95.5 FM, streaming at kcbpradio.org. I'm talking today with Lillian Valley. Would you tell us a little bit about your family and your childhood, Lillian? Well, I was um, born in a DP camp in uh, Hamburg, Germany. My parents were forced laborers during the war. They were, uh, they're both Polish. My mother's from central Poland, my dad from eastern Poland. Um, and they were conscripted as uh, forced laborers as teenagers uh, during uh, World War II. Um, and so they ended up in uh, Hamburg uh, after the war, and that's where my oldest brother and I were born. So um, I come from an immigrant background. Um, when I was a year and a half, we uh, were sponsored by a family in Detroit, Michigan, and so I spent my childhood in Detroit. What are some of the important early influences on you, your love of language and nature? I think for love of language, uh, my first language was not English. And so I think early on, um, I had a sense of how important language was as a communication tool. Um, when I went to kindergarten, I didn't understand a word of English. Uh, but later on, I became sort of a translator for my parents and uh, sort of their secretary when they took on odd jobs. My dad sometimes cleaned dental offices or did some extra work outside of his job to earn a little extra income. And so I would write the letters for them and their, do their billing. And so I think, uh, you know, on a personal level, uh, I, and I also saw how when you don't know a language, my dad, who was one of, one of the wisest people I think I have ever met, um, you know, never really learned English very well, always spoke a kind of a broken English. And I could see how people treated him. Mm -hmm. um, so when somebody is, is, is a quiet person to begin with, but then speaks a kind of a broken English, I could see how he was always uh, underestimated um, as a human being. 
so I think in that way, the deforming um, influence of you know making assumptions about language or the lack of language. But then uh, I went to a Catholic school. I was sent to a Catholic school, and um, I remember in the third grade we were told to write an essay about dogs, I think it was. <laughs> and uh, the uh, the challenge was to use the word dog only once, and then you had to use something else instead of that. And I remember that that gave me some insight. And apparently I did a good job because the teacher read the essay. And I, and I think it gave me an insight into the mechanics of writing about the, uh, the variety and the versatility and the flexibility that you had to have in it. So that was kind of a an early third grade lesson. But I think um, I wasn't really fond of school. Um, I, we had very harsh nuns for the most part with a couple of exceptions. Um, but uh, we had to attend mass every day. And um, I think what I learned about language, I learned first from church Latin. And that was how the sacred could be expressed in language that was incantatory, that language that uh, was worthy of, of the sacred and uh, that was very, very close to music. So I think, uh, the, you know, when, when I think back, I uh, sang in the choir law, so we, had to, we sang the, the mass in Latin. Uh, the, the beauty of that, even if you don't understand it, but if you understand the, the music, of it. And I have to say that, that that stood me in pretty good stead, because if you listen to someone like Dylan Thomas reading his poetry, you almost don't have to understand what he's saying, the, the music of it, the, the rhythm of it. So I think that had a big impact on me. Um, language is a vehicle for the sacred, uh, as having the power to communicate, or um, also... Um, to understand that language can deform. So the power of it, the, the absolute power of it. And I was an early reader. The library was a real gift to me in Detroit. And the minute I discovered books, that was it was all over for me. <laughs> it's still all over for me. <laughs> you mentioned to me when we were speaking by phone about a feeling of cultural schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah. Well, um, I, I mean, I was born in Europe, in post-war Europe, uh, literally in the ruins of Europe, I would say, uh, because the pictures from that time were, you know, it was, you know, the, it was a world uh, in rubble. And, and my first language, uh, my first languages were probably certainly Polish and maybe a smattering of German. So, and then I grew up in Detroit in uh, a kind of an emigrant, you know, in a immigrant, emigre community uh, where the radio was in Polish and the newspapers were in Polish. And so uh, until I went to school, um, Polish was my language. And so I, I'm very attached to that language. And um, after I completed a degree in English literature, I, I felt that I, I, I couldn't stay there. I, uh, and I took a trip to Poland, and I found that I needed to reclaim that language. 
And I had grown up on my mother's stories. Uh, Poland was a very real thing to me. That culture, her experiences were very real to me. That history was very real to me. So I have always felt that I had one leg in that old world and one leg here. And that's not really a very uh, comfortable position to be in. Um, so emotionally, uh, I may live a little more strongly in Polish than I do in the English, but, but English is certainly the language of the intellect for me. And so uh, my, my struggle was um, to figure out how to reconcile those two cultures, uh, the Polish and the American, and um, my attachment to both of those. And, you know, the fact that you can't deny the experience that you have in a new country, except that my history was really in, in, in the old world. So when I decided to study Slavic languages and literature as a graduate student, and it was my good fortune that uh, the professor happened to be Czesław Miłosz, who turned out to be a Polish poet, and it was just serendipity. Uh, I was able to bridge um, those two cultures uh, through the art of translation mm -hmm. for a long time. So, But it was a real struggle, because if you're not educated in a language, and I was not educated in Polish, I mean, I... I had a child's understanding of the language. I had to spend five very solid years reclaiming that language so that I could read in it as comfortably as I do uh, in English. Uh, and it was a struggle, and, some, and at times I thought I wasn't going to be able to do it. But I did. I went on um, you know, for a while to do a lot of translation. I was a freelance translator for quite a while and, and have about a dozen or more books and probably many more articles that I translated, poetry, um, because I saw that as a way to uh, engage actively on the threshold of those two cultures. And I did go back. I went back on a Fulbright and a Stanford Warsaw Exchange scholarship. And it's pretty hard for people to tell that I'm not a Pole when I'm there, even though my Polish right now probably would be quite rusty. But um, I love that culture. The language is a good match for English literature. English literature is a very, very rich language and very rich in nature, just as, as Polish is. That connection is still very strong in both languages. And so um, uh, so that was very rich and rewarding uh, in many ways. But you're never really of one piece. You know, you're never really all of one culture. That, I think, it can be a gift in terms of what you can see, the insights that you have. Uh, but it can also be a, a disadvantage in terms of a sense of, you know, stable cultural base, I think. And, and there are lots of kids. Uh, I mean, I liked teaching many kids that were coming from different backgrounds because I could completely identify with what they were trying to do uh, and the choices they were struggling to make between two cultures, yeah. I would love to know more about what it is to be a, a translator, the art of translation, particularly poetry. Could you uh, tell us more about that? Yeah, it's it's essentially the art of failure. Oh. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I had it easy. I, I served an apprenticeship with Czesław Miwa, so he would often get his students to translate whatever he was working on or essays. And so that's how I began with him, too, by 
translating and we did do a book of poems called bells in winter but the way he he would do kind of he would do a rough translation then i would do something that i thought was closer to um an Eng a more polished english version uh, but he, but the advantage i had with him was that he could uh, create an arc between polish and english by creating by doing something very different in in english for example that i as a translator could not do i could not take that liberty with language with essays it was a little easier um so i i did some translations for him and he would say oh my god that's such a terrible translation oh. <laughs> And I was trying so hard to stay faithful to the original, but you can't do that. You have to make it live in the new language. And so when he would say that to me, I understood that that was kind of the license to have a certain kind of freedom. Mm -hmm. And so then I was able to do that after a while. But especially with poetry, you're, prob you're probably giving up the music often, oh. unless you can recreate the music if there's music in the original, um, in the new language. Uh, but that, that's a very difficult thing to do. It's much easier with prose. And I did translate a book probably that was the most successful, a three-volume literary diary by Vitor Gombrowicz, you know, for which it's probably the only book that made a little bit of money for me. <laughs> but um, the thing about translating something, it really made me work harder to understand my own language. And I think that's the pitfall of not knowing any other language, is that you never really get to know your language very intimately either. It's always an automatic thing. And so um, when I was doing that literary diary, he was a master of Polish and I was not a master of English, but I really had to push myself to try to express some of that genius that, that he expresses in his writing. And I think that did me a lot of good. It was the same thing with, with Miłosz. You're working as uh, an amateur. Uh, you're learning. It opens you up. It, it's a test of, uh, you know, how far you can push the language, how much you know it. I, I'm still to this day learning it. Uh, my mother was better than my dad about learning English, and she was a real stickler for precision. And uh, I remember having conversations with her where she would correct me about my, my, my word choice, and I loved that, and especially when it, when it had to do with nature. Because she grew up in a country where, in, and it was interwar Poland, it was a very brief period, but where kids had gardens and they were competitive gardens at school. And they would go out into the forest and they would pick mushrooms and they knew all about the plants. That Their nature literacy was quite high. And she sustained that in the new place as well. So... Um, that's another thing I think that fuels my own my own interest is the continuity of that too. So could you talk a little bit about your own poetry? I know you have some chapbooks published. I've heard you read a couple of times. Yeah, it's it has always seemed to me to be a deeply um, private thing, even though it goes out into the public. Um, I think it mainly has been a way of handling uh, reality and. Um, 
I'm also in love with the music of it. I love incantatory poetry. I think it offers solace. Uh, the music offers solace. And I was coming out of, my parents were coming out of a historical experience that was full of sorrow. And I think identifying that um, experience, uh, a lot of my poetry is about them mm. and um, lending some meaning to that experience because um, they both live making tremendous sacrifices oh. of various kinds of their own lives and for their children. And um, so uh, for me, it's, it's a meaning-making operation that gives solace mm -hmm. um, that's mostly private but I think it has to be shared because that's where it has some social value that's where it frees other people I think to address things that might be deeply buried you know within them as members of a wider community of humans and the world that we all inhabit what do you feel should be our priorities and, and how can we best help one another and the planet and ourselves? I think it's important to do the best you can uh, with taking care of yourself, your own life, uh, the life of your family in, in your immediate circle. I think one of the things that uh, I think I learned from my parents is that you really need to take care of the, the people around you as much as you can with as much uh, love and fairness and uh, devotion and attention. And I, I think it's that attention that we can bring to other people as well. Listening, engaging in trying to bring health to the place that you live in, however however you decide to pursue that. So I, I think there are so many ways to do that. Some on the microcosm, some on a macrocosmic uh, level. But I, I think, first of all, being somebody that's healthy so that you're not projecting your neuroses onto other people and really looking at other people and listening to other people. I grew up in Detroit. Detroit was full of tensions mm -hmm. uh, when I was growing up there. Immigrants were walking into a kind of a powder keg. Uh, they were maybe being being used in, in some ways and you know there were racial tensions and I think talking about those things, I wish, uh, you know, I lived in uh, a neighborhood where there were black churches on the corners all around me, and there was so little interaction. There was so little explanation of what was going on, and it was only years later that I would read about, you know, what the historical context was for what was happening in Detroit in the 50s and then and then in the 60s. And so I think uh, being open to other people and, and having these conversations and listening to them and wanting not just beauty, but making sure that beauty is somehow allied to justice mm -hmm. and fairness. So right now, I think, you know, take care of your own health, mental and, and physical, and then do what you can to ensure that for others. Learn about other people's histories 
don't be satisfied just knowing your own. Although that I think is the first step because if you have enough respect and understanding of your own history, it is really the bridge to understanding other people who are coming from different backgrounds, whether they're immigrants, whether they're people who are just very different from you, whether there are people even that are hostile to you. So I, I think being as alive as you can yeah. be um, by paying attention. A problem can be limiting yourself to only your own little finite existence. If you let in other centuries, you know, history, memory, if you let in other people, it becomes a very ontologically rich existence. And I wish that for everybody. And I wish for a profound health for this region. And it will come out of an equilibrium of, you know, economic and natural and social forces. Thank you so much, Lillian. I've enjoyed our conversation immensely. And, and I appreciate uh, your listening and attention. And uh, I'm very grateful uh, that I can speak, I hope, to um, other people. And I hope that everybody gets engaged in some kind of project that contributes to all of our health. I hope so, too. Thank, Thank you. you, Linda. The Arts of the San Joaquin Valley has been produced and hosted by Linda Scheller and Sandy Graham and features music by Kilobot, Waves of Wonder from the album Jazzy Lazy. You can learn more about their music at www.kilobot.de. That's K-I-E-L-O-B-O-T dot D-E. If you would like us to feature your art-related event, or if you would like to be featured on our show, contact us at arts at kcbpradio.org. Stay tuned for more great community radio brought to you by local volunteers, the Modesto Peace Life Center, and listeners like you. Please visit kcbpradio.org to show your support and to learn more about your community radio station. Catch you next time on the Arts of the San Joaquin Valley.